well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I wondered if I would just be preaching to a camera this morning, so thanks for braving the weather and uh, in coming to fellowship and worship with us together today. Um, I'm going to ask for some help from the kids or any of you who might be brave enough in, in identifying for me um, somebody from the Bible, maybe from the Old Testament, maybe from the New Testament, your favorite Bible character. Who, who's your favorite Bible character? David is your favorite Bible character. Why? Okay, because you've been named after David. Okay. That's good. He was a he was a, a young boy of faith. He demonstrated his commitment to trust God when things looked really impossible. Good, David. Who else has a favorite? Ruth is your favorite. Why is Ruth your favorite? That's good. Her loyalty to her mother-in-law and also her loyalty to God. I, I, I'm reminded of the statement that she makes where she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And because of her commitment to God, God actually put her in the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to have time to look at that this morning. And it's captured for us actually in Matthew and not in Luke's genealogy that is at the end of chapter 3. But what, what a great example of commitment to Christ, commitment to God. Wonderful. Who else? I saw another hand. Back there, Lily. Mary. Which Mary do you like? The mother of Jesus. Why do you like Mary? She believed everything the angel said. That the, the innocent, authentic, sincere faith of Mary. What a great example for us. Who else has a favorite? Okay, I, hear, I see a hand back there. Moses. Why do you like Moses, Jane? He led Israel out of captivity. He trusted God too. There are so many great examples of people in the Old and New Testament who anchored their heart in a commitment to God in faith and were used mightily to accomplish God's purposes. This morning we're going to come to a, another man. A man that probably doesn't get a whole lot of uh, street time in, in your Bible study, but a man that by Jesus' own confession is the greatest man who ever lived. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now that is some significant credential. What we're going to see this morning is the ministry that God gave to John the Baptist is a ministry that God has also given to every child of God. Every person who has come to Jesus Christ in faith, every person who has bowed their heart in confession of sin, has come to a place of repentance, turning away from the, the wicked former life and turning to the life that God has called them to and has made God their Lord and Savior. God has called you to the same kind of ministry. And by the way, 
the same kind of impact. This morning we're going to look at four features of John the Baptist's ministry. The four features of John the Baptist's ministry that, that can be true, and I might even say should be true, of every person in this room who calls himself a Christian. God has called us all to this kind of ministry. We're going to see in, in Luke chapter 3, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, it's in the Pew Bible in front of you, I think page 859. So um, I just want to encourage you to look at the Word of God. Um, it is the Word of God that we believe gives authority to teaching. And so to see it for yourself in front of you, whether it's a, a paper copy or electronic copy, uh, whatever it is, look at the Word. We're going to see, first of all, that um, the ministry of John the Baptist was characterized as a ministry that pointed to Jesus. A ministry that pointed to Jesus. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 3. Notice with me. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As we said last week, and I'm going to continue to, to ask us this question as we look into the Word of God, the question before us as we look into the Scripture is, what is the point? <laughs> Why does the Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decide to pen these words? What, what is the significance? What is the purpose? What is the reason for these words? It's not tangential. It's not superficial. It, it has a reason. What is the purpose? Well, there may be many purposes. First, perhaps, that, that Luke wants to anchor this narrative, this story of John the Baptist, and subsequently, the story of Jesus Christ in history. We see in these two verses alone, seven historical figures. All of whose histories align without contradiction. All of, all of whom served in specific places in which Luke designates all of whom would have been familiar to Luke's audience. And thus, because of being familiar to Luke's audience, would have been verifiable, would have been subject to scrutiny. And so those who are reading Luke's account would be able to say, this is or this is not true based upon the integrity of the account that Luke is giving. So certainly, Luke has in mind anchoring the the story, the narrative of John the Baptist, the story of Jesus in history, that Jesus was a historical figure. Luke, I think, also has in mind, as we see from the beginning parts of Luke chapter 1, that he wants to give an account of that which was accomplished in the days of Jesus to help us understand that the prophetic word about Jesus in the Old Testament was confirmed to us through the testimony, the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was a fulfillment of all the prophets had indicated. And, and in our passage this morning, 
as John the Baptist will be this figure that is preparing the way of the Lord, words that come directly from Isaiah, we'll see that, in fact, the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophecy that we see going back to the Old Testament. But I think there's another deeper reason why Luke is writing this. And let me just... I will read verse 1 and part of verse 2 so that you can see um, what I think I see. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John. The point is while there are historical figures, and Luke is careful to give us not only the, the, the greatest historical figures that would have been known to the people there in the first century, the, the ruler of the known world, the, empire, the Roman Empire, the local leaders and governors, Pontius Pilate and, and others that he names, against the backdrop of these historical figures, the ministry of John the Baptist comes to the forefront. It is this ministry of John the Baptist, the word of God coming to John the Baptist, and now the emergence of the greatest figure of human history, not John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus. As we saw in chapter two, the, the lights that had been initially pointing and helping us to see Mary and Joseph, the, the light begins to fade on the secondary players and, be, and the spotlight begins to shine on the primary person of Jesus Christ. We see the same thing happening here in Luke chapter 3. Where all of these historical figures, as, as great and powerful as they may have been, they pale in comparison with the significance of the ministry that God had given to John the Baptist. Tiberius Caesar, who was this a political figure, he was essentially the second emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus, his stepdad be, being the first. He reigned from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. He was, he was the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. Fifteen years after he was co-regent, having shared some of the leadership with his stepdad, Caesar Augustus, in A.D. 11. The, the narrative is set 15 years after that date, which puts us around A.D. 26. Pontius Pilate, who was also a local leader, and we recognize his name because of the, the way that he was instrumental in the crucifixion account. Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, Jerusalem, of course, being the primary city in Judea. Herod, who was one of the three sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who helped to, to build the temple. Herod, in view here, is actually named Antipas, who ruled over Galilee from uh, 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. He is the Herod referred to in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry and the Herod who was responsible not only for imprisoning John the Baptist but ultimately uh, beheading him and killing him. We see Philip and Lysanias. These are two other brothers of Herod Antipas and they are also local leaders and so the entire region uh, from Israel spreading all the way up past Galilee, all the way up north of Damascus is in view all of these regional leaders. 
And then Luke gives us Annas and Caiaphas, who were the religious leaders of the day, the high priests in Jerusalem. It was unusual at this time to have two high priests that were named. High priests would usually serve a, a, a life, um, not a life sentence, but he would serve a, a lifelong ministry. Sometimes being a pastor is a lifelong sentence, I, I, I often think. It is a calling. It's a calling. Although no longer officially a high priest, Annas was nonetheless the most powerful figure in the Jewish religious establishment. He served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15 when he was removed from office, but but because of the bitterness of the people of, of Israel in, in, in the interference, essentially, of the Roman government in, in uh, removing Annas from office, they still considered Annas to be the high priest, the official high priest. So he, he carried a great deal of spiritual influence throughout the duration of Jesus' life. And much like in our own culture, those who are presidents carry the title whether they serve as current presidents or not. We refer to them as the president of the United States. So Annas' title, however, uh, was more than just a courtesy. He actually carried a lot of the responsibility and power and authority of the high priest, even though he wasn't officially serving in that role. But while these men were given immense authority and power, they pale in comparison with the ministry of John the Baptist. John, of course, who was setting the stage for the greatest figure of history, Jesus himself. As Zachariah's father would say in Luke chapter 1, verse 75, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And we'll see in our passage this morning from Luke chapter 3, verse 4, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so the life and ministry of John the Baptist really was the encapsulation of, of everything that the Old Testament sought to accomplish. God, in establishing a covenant relationship with Abraham, calling him out of the land of Ur and the Chaldees into the promised land and, and establishing a relationship with him, uh, giving him a promise of a future seed who, by the way, was not Isaac, but was looking down through the annals of time and thinking about this promised one, Jesus. And Moses, as the, the deliverer, the figurative deliverer of the people, leading the people out of bondage of Egypt, was just an illustration of that promised future deliverer of the Messiah who would be the Passover lamb, who would be the tabernacle, who would be the high priest, who would be the sacrifice, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The entirety of the Old Testament pointing to the future one, the Messiah, and John the Baptist, in his ministry, culminates in this first feature of pointing to Jesus, the promised Messiah. This morning, as we think about the own, our own ministry, the ministry that God has called us to, and as we think about our life's purpose, does your life point to Jesus? That is the one objective that God has called you to. 
That in worshiping God, he has called you to point to Jesus. I like how John Piper puts it. He says, you cannot commend what you do not cherish. So if your own heart and life are not directed towards that goal, if you're not caught up with that ambition, that yearning, that longing of loving and looking for Jesus, you can't hope to call other people to enjoy him as well. Does your life point to Jesus? That is what you and I as believers are called to do. As we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we see you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim the praises of him, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Does your life point to Jesus? That is the feature of the new covenant uh, calling the new covenant mission that we have because of, of, of what John is, is trying to help us see in Jesus who will accomplish for us salvation and deliverance so that we can be the, like John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord for people around us, people in our families, people in your workplaces, people in your community who need to know Jesus, that eternity is at stake. How is your life pointing? To Jesus. We see the next feature of John the Baptist's ministry, not in Luke chapter 3, but in Luke chapter 1. I want to just remind us of why the ministry of John the Baptist was so powerful to begin with. And it was, it was powerful not only because it pointed to, to Jesus, but because it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. A ministry that was empowered by the Spirit. Let me just remind you of this. We see the, the ministry of the Spirit of God punctuating the early life of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, the announcement of the angel is, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And that's exactly what happened. We see that in, in Luke chapter 1, 41, when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. And as she walks into the house and gives her greeting to Elizabeth, it's, we find here, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This was unprecedented. This never happened in the Old Testament. This was not the ministry of the Spirit that we see in the Old Testament times, to be filled with the Spirit. This word filled used both in verse 15 and in verse 41 are in the passive sense, which means that, that John is a recipient of this filling. Perhaps there's no better place to look when you're trying to, to illustrate the doctrine of election because here John is and he doesn't have any opportunity to believe it's the Holy Spirit who is calling him to himself. And perhaps there is no better place to look when we talk about the sanctity of life. We talk about the, the life before birth, the life in the womb. This word filled is to be filled with total involvement, to fill completely, to fill up, to cause to be full. It's the same word that is used when the disciples caught this huge haul of fish in Luke chapter 5. And they remember they, they pulled the, the fish into their boats and it filled it up so the boats began to sink. Same word that is used in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 
2, verse 4, when the disciples who were there in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. This word is used 24 times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, it's used in Luke and Acts with the exception of two other cases. In the ministry, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we find predominantly that the Holy Spirit comes on individuals. It stirs up individuals. It rests on individuals. There's only two people in the entire Old Testament that are, that are spoken of as having been filled with the Spirit. One is Bezalel and the other is Ohalia, Ohaliab, excuse me, who were tasked with specific uh, duty of building the tabernacle the skill that they needed from the Holy Spirit in order to fashion the tabernacle and fashion the garments and to fashion all of the furniture and and all of the utensils needed for worship. They're the only two in the entire Old Testament who are described as having been filled that way, but it was temporary. It was specific. It, it, It was to fulfill a specific function. But in the New Testament... Beginning here with John the Baptist, we see an entirely new kind of ministry. A ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, empowering for service, that comes not only early in life, but stays and remains through the duration of life. John the Baptist, being filled with the Spirit, was able to accomplish the work that God had given to him to do through the power of God on his life. Do you realize this morning, brother and sister in Christ, that God has indwelled you with the same power. If you are a believer today, if you have come to Christ in faith, you have the same power this morning. This is the the new covenant promise that was promised all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel 37, 14, I will put my spirit in you. And Joel 2, 28, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, irrespective of your heritage, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Those who come to God in faith enjoy the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Does your life this morning point to Jesus? Is Jesus the object of your affection? Is Jesus the, the direction of your conversation Does he guide the motive of your life, the purpose for which you live? And are you empowered with the Holy Spirit that those who have the Holy Spirit living within them are those who also want to point people to Jesus so they can experience the same indwelling power, the same help and encouragement that comes from his ministry to us? John the Baptist pointed to Jesus John the Baptist was empowered by the Spirit. And in verses 2 to 4 and also in verse 18, we see that John the Baptist's ministry was propelled by the Word of God. Propelled by the Word of God. This should all look really familiar, by the way, because the ministry that we're seeing in John the Baptist is the same ministry that God has given to each of us. Notice in verse 2, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. It stirred him up. It it guided and directed his focus. It it commissioned him to ministry. In verse 3, we see 
the word of God coming forth from the mouth of John the Baptist as he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Where did he get that? He got that from the word. The word of God is on his lips. Notice in verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the fulfillment of all that God had promised to come through the forerunner was now present in the ministry and life of John the Baptist. And then notice in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, preaching the word. As short as John's ministry becomes, it was punctuated by the word of God. And so it was powerful. It was potent. It was effective. Three words that kind of describe his ministry of the word. First, in proclaiming there in verse 3. This word, which means to announce. It's the word keruso, to tell, to preach, to proclaim with a goal of persuading. This will be the word that is used predominantly to describe the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Also used to describe the, the ministry that the believers will have as they are infused with the word of God and speak that word to others. In verse 18, we see exhortations, which is the word to invite, to call together, to encourage, to plead, to ask for earnestly. It's the word parakaleo. And if you remember, as Jesus is describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he calls him the helper. He calls him the comforter, which is, uh, uh, which is connected to the same root word. It's parakletos. The significance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in accomplishing this work of speaking and comforting and encouraging and helping. Exhortation. And then this word preaching, which should be very familiar to us. The word euangelizo, to tell the good news, to preach the gospel. The ministry that is unique to New Testament believers that God has given to us as those who are also commissioned not only to love the word, but to speak the word to others. Do you realize this morning that the ministry of John the Baptist in speaking the word is the same ministry that God has given to us? And it comes with the same power. We could go to a number of verses, but I picked two from Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what, church? The word of God. If there are people in your life that need Jesus, and your heart is burdened for their salvation, know and love the word and speak the word to those you love, because the word can have its way in their heart. And then Romans 1, 16 At this time, the Apostle Paul is in prison. And though he is bound, I love, he says, but the word of God is not bound. It has power. In Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The hallmark of John the Baptist preaching was a hallmark of speaking and preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins and that's our fourth feature that we'll look at this morning the fourth feature of his ministry that we're all called to exemplify we're all called to do you see that in Luke chapter 3 verses 3 to 14 and we may by the way not get through all of this but you'll still get this point 
And um, we may have just to pick it up at some other time. A ministry that begins with repentance. Well, what is repentance? Notice in Luke chapter 3, verse 3 again, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's going on there? What does repentance accomplish? What is the purpose of repentance? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, also speaking of John the Baptist's ministry, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think re repentance is one of those often misunderstood words in the New Testament. It's the word met metanoia, which means a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. It's a turning with action, not just with feeling. It's a life change that results from seeing things in a whole new light. While I was uh, an engineer out in California, uh, I was working in aerospace and building communication satellites, and as part of, of being able to go down to High Bay, down to the satellite factory, to be able to put some parts on the, on the spacecraft, uh, we had to go through this training, High Bay training. And as part of this high bay, bay training, one of the, the, the videos they showed us uh, was a silhouetted person who was sneezing. If any, if any of you have seen that, I, I wasn't going to show a picture. I'll, I'll let you Google it for yourself. Do you know that sneezes can travel up to 100 miles an hour? And do you realize that, that with one sneeze, there are over 100,000 droplets within that sneeze? It's pretty disgusting. The, the point was that you realized how bad your sneeze was so that you wouldn't contaminate the, spa the spacecraft. Or, or maybe you have read the documentary that was recently put out by the England's University of Manchester. They found that a single toothbrush can harbor more than 100 million bacteria. That's why I don't brush. <laughs> I'll, I'll just escape the whole thing. You see, repentance is a way for us to come to a new understanding, and predominantly a new understanding of who we are in relation to God. And once we come to understand our sin, then it, it changes the entire focus of our life. It's meant to lead to action, a turning from where we were and a turning to God. Repentance is found 11 times as a noun, and 14 times as a verb in Luke and Acts, compared with seven times in Matthew and three times in Mark. You can see the emphasis of repentance is significant for Luke as he's working through. But saving repentance never exists apart from faith. Repentance is not a first work. It's not a work that you do so that you uh, earn yourself Salvation. It is a work of God in your life to lead you to a new perspective, a new turning, a humbling of heart and mind, which leads you to faith in God. It's a work of God in you and for you to lead you to faith, not independent of faith. Repentance assumes that people are fundamentally broken and wicked, not that they are inherently good. Isaiah will describe this desperate situation in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. 
when he says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah is writing in a time of spiritual reformation, spiritual revival. This was one of the best times that ever happened in Israel's history, and yet he describes all the righteousness of these people as polluted and corrupt and vain. They amount to nothing. The answer we see in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. God is describing has just described all of the traditions, all of the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all of the the bulls and goats and rams that were killed and sacrificed. God says, don't bring that to me anymore. That's not what I want. What I want instead is for you to wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil, uh, evil of your deeds from before my eyes Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Humble yourself. Come to a place of repentance. Look to God alone as the only one who can wash and cleanse and purify you. And he will come and forgive your sins as a result of your faith in him to do so. We see in verses four to six an illustration, the setting of repentance. Notice it says, as it is written in the book of the, the, book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John had lived in the wilderness region from the early parts of his life. Luke chapter one, verse 80 says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until, um, until the day of his public appearance. We don't know the specifics about John's Parents, but Zechariah and Elizabeth, both being aged, likely died early on in, in John's, uh, John's development. So he moves out into the wilderness, and this is the setting in which God will illustrate repentance. Why? Why the wilderness? Why a ministry of baptism? Well, there are two significant issues that we see right from the start. The first issue is that Jews did not get baptized. Gentiles did. While there were various ceremonial washings in Judaism, there was no baptism of the Jew. But while there was no baptism of the Jew in Judaism, the Jews did baptize Gentile converts to Judaism. And so those who were coming to be baptized by John the Baptist were essentially acknowledging that they were no better than the Gentiles. They were coming just like the Gentiles in a need for repentance, a need for God to do something for them and in them that they could not do for themselves, something they could not import from their heritage, from their lineage of a a connection to Abraham. The second problem is that repentance did not happen in a desolate wilderness. It happened in Jerusalem. The location of John's ministry 
was a rebuke to the religious establishment located primarily in Jerusalem. That John ministered in the wilderness symbolized God's disdain not only for Gentile idolatry, but also for hypocritical Jewish legalism. It symbolized John's attack on the religious establishment. That John, as a portrait and illustration of repentance, wanted to help the people see that it could only happen independently of the ceremony. It could happen only as God would do a work in their heart. It would happen whether they were a Jew or a Gentile. He paves the way for the ministry that God would accomplish through Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord. Notice verse 5, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. The imagery is of an oriental monarch on a journey sending messengers ahead of him to make sure the roads were cleared of debris. They would cut down the mountains and carve a path through the hills, as many of you have seen as you're driving through like places of Kentucky or places of Pennsylvania, the, the sheer cliffs and the road cutting straight through. This is not a new concept. And the, and the valleys would be brought up, and they would, they would fill in the, the places with a, a land bridge, essentially, from one side to the next. That was the ministry that God had given for John the Baptist to do to prepare the way of the Lord. The wilderness really pictures the sinful heart. It's an illustration of the wretchedness and the desolation of the human heart and its need for God. That God would fill in those ravines. He would use humbling to draw them to himself. I think it's also a picture of God bringing down the Jew and raising up the Gentile, those who were, who were cut off from God, those who were outside of the commonwealth of Israel, now enjoying the benefits of this new covenant relationship so that all will see the salvation of the Lord as we see in verse six. Because the coming through the Messiah, preparing the way of the Lord would have set the groundwork for the work that God had sought to accomplish through faith in Christ. It was a way of repentance for Jew and Gentile. But notice also that repentance leads to action. We see in verses 7 to 14 a series of statements, interchanges that happen between the crowd and John. And on the surface, as you read through, you might be caught off guard to say, huh, this doesn't look like repentance to me. This looks like a works-oriented salvation. He speaks to four groups. We see in verse 7, the crowds, where in Matthew, it is the Pharisees and Sadducees predominantly that he's speaking to, but the crowds in general. Notice in verse 12, he's speaking to the tax collectors. Notice in verse 14, he's speaking to soldiers. All of Israel had come to hear this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and, and, and God had, had used the, the power of the Spirit and the, and the prominence of the Word of God to, to draw people to John the Baptist's ministry. But we also see four direct statements. We're going to see some explosive statements not only from John the Baptist, but as we continue moving through the narrative about Jesus Christ, we're going to see that what should have been tender seems to come across with such force. Notice verse 7b. You brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to, uh, sorry, who warned you to what? Flee. Flee, sorry, from the wrath to come. My eyes are so bad. What lies on the, under the surface of this? It's the same indictment that, that Jesus would give to this group of individuals in John chapter 8. You're not, you're not of your father Abraham. You're of your father the devil. John is categorizing a whole group of people as those who are not from Abraham. They can't trace their lineage back to promise. They can only trace their lineage back to death and corruption. Brood of vipers. He continues to respond to this group in, in a couple of different ways. They ask, what shall we do in verse 10? And he says in verse 11, whoever has two eunuchs is to share him, share them with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Verses 12 to 13, to the tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. To the soldiers in verse 14, do not extort money from anyone by threat or by false accusation and be content with your wages. What in the world is going on here? Where's the repentance? John is aiming for the heart. John is trying to identify areas where they are defective and they can see it. Much like what Jesus does to the rich young ruler later in our account in Luke, Luke chapter 18. Remember where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this golden opportunity to make it very clear. And what does he do? You know the commandments. What, Jesus? You know the commandments? What is that all about? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler responds, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. What was Jesus trying to accomplish? Not a works-based salvation. But what should have been a very apparent to, to this rich young ruler is that his life was out of step with every single command that Jesus had just given and ushered from the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus brings a very direct statement in a, in a clear area of deficiency for this young, rich young ruler, which should have been eye-opening for him to realize I need repentance. I need salvation. I need forgiveness for my sin. Instead, he walks away. That's the point for John the Baptist. And that's the point for all of us in this room. Not to look at the rules that God gives to us from his word and say, yep, got that one. Yep, got that one. Yep, got that one. But to say, woe is me, a sinner in need of grace. Where are you this morning in terms of your relationship with God? Where are you this morning in terms of your ministry that God has commissioned you to have? Are you pointing to Jesus, empowered with the Spirit, speaking the word of God and specifically about repentance and forgiveness of sin that is available, by the way, for everyone who comes to God in faith and, and asks for forgiveness? If you confess your sin, he is faithful 
and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you done that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Thank you for the ministry that you've commissioned us with as well. That we have purpose and meaning in life because of what Jesus has accomplished for us in pointing to his ministry, empowered with the Spirit, speaking the potent, powerful word of God in calling people to repentance. May our lives emulate that mission, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. Those of you who are uh, coming to the pizza with the pastors, I wanna encourage you, if you're new to Maranatha, we'd love to have you come. Uh, We'll be meeting straight down that hallway to the right. Thanks for coming. God bless you.